Happy Black History Month. Happy Black Panther weekend. And I am going to say happy President's Day. And I'll tell you why in just a second. Because this is Culture of Consent with King. That's right. Cock. <laughs> On this episode, we celebrate the first black president, Richard Pryor. We interview an Orthodox rabbi about consent in the Old Testament and the Bible and why Donald Trump is a sodomite. And I have some Tam thoughts about living your truth. So it's February, it's Black History Month, Black Panther came out, and President's Day is February 19th. So I would be remiss if I did not play you the audio from the first ever black president in the United States of America. That's right, Richard Pryor. This particular skit was a part of the Richard Pryor show, which ran in 1977. The show itself only had four episodes because Pryor was so damn frustrated with the whole process of making the show, he just did not do it any longer. I don't know if that sounds like anybody else that you know that had a fucking brilliant show about race and class and gender in the United States who then decided to not do it anymore because the execs and the reaction of white America pissed him off a little bit too much, Chappelle. So take a listen to this and pay special attention to the audience reaction. And you know, like what's considered the joke. And for context, this is the president at a press conference. And this is just one section of the full skit, which is available on YouTube. Mr. President, Mr. President. Yes. Uh, Arthur Williams, Chicago Sun-Herald. You've just okayed a $250 million increase in our space program. What I'd like to know is the main reason you did this so we can finally recruit black people for the space program? I feel it's time that black people went to space. White people have been going to space for years and spacing out on us, as you might say. And I feel with the the projects that we have in mind, we're going to send explore ships through other galaxies and no longer will they have the same type of music, Beethoven, Brahms, and Tchaikovsky. From now on, we have little Miles Davis and Charlie Parker. We're gonna have some different kind of things in there. That's right. Yes, yes, ma'am. Roberta Davies, Jet Magazine. (laughs) Mr. President, on your list of candidates for director of the FBI, are you including the name of Huey Newton? Yes, I figure that Huey Newton is best qualified. He knows the ins and outs of the FBI. If anybody knows the ins and outs, and he would be an excellent director. Yo, blood. Brother Bell from Ebony Magazine. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Assalamu alaikum. All right. <laughs> what you looking at, Snow White? Uh, brother, about blacks in the labor force. I want to know what you're going to do about having more black brothers as quarterbacks in the National Football Hunker League. Okay. I plan not only to have lots of black quarterbacks, but we're going to have black coaches and black owners of teams. As long as it's going to be football, going to be some black in it somewhere. Right. Oh, doing something right. Right. Yeah, right. Because I'm tired of this mess that's been going down. Right. You know what I mean? Ever since the Rams got rid of James Harris, I've done my job in the top. You know what I'm talking about? So we're going to get down on the case now. Yes, what, what is it? Mr. President. Yeah, what? <laughs> Mr. Bigby, Mississippi Herald. Sit down. Now, this shit was pretty radical in the 1970s. You can basically hear people's heads exploding at the idea of Jet Magazine being in the press conference, the president outwardly greeting a brother from the Nation of Islam, answering questions about diversity in football. Shout out Colin Kaepernick. Honestly, a lot of the same shit that the Obama era has brought up for people. And Obama was far from the black nationalist or black liberation figurehead I think a lot of people were hoping for. Though we did get eight years of being you know, represented globally by a man and family embracing multiculturalism and soul music and melanin, the seeds were planted for pretty drastic cultural discord that was stemming from the segments of America that felt the most repressed in their falsified notions of like economic and cultural equity. 
I'll, I'll have more detailed perspective on that when I finish the Taniki sorry, Ta-Nehisi Coates book, We Were Eight Years in Power, which I was lovingly gifted for my birthday and I highly recommend. But right now, we have a belligerent baby with an anus for a mouth spouting racist, misogynist hate as fast as his tiny little sweaty thumbs can type into Twitter. And I think that's why many of us are so focused on how black art, specifically art by and about people of color, women of color, LGBTQ people, is finally having a moment to dominate the cultural landscape of American cinema and music and television and fashion and food. And on food, shout out to Alamo Drafthouse in downtown Brooklyn, who's serving a Black Panther themed menu that's like all Ethiopian inspired because you know it borders Wakanda. And side note, I saw a meme that was like, what does coming to America have to do with Black Panther? And someone replied, um, ma'am, Zamunda and Wakanda are bordering nations. Like, what was your ass studying in social studies class? <laughs> anyway, something to keep in mind is that uh, Black Panther was created by two Jewish guys from New York. They were they're huge champions of the Marvel Comics universe, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. This is the 1960s, um, and in many interviews, they said they wanted African Americans to have a superhero too. And it really wasn't until this month that the Black Panther comic has gotten some sufficient attention, paid to some pretty dope storytelling and really gorgeous and amazing art, which I will be covering in a future episode with a comic specialist. But in this particular podcast, you'll hear a lot about, well, actually, in every episode of this podcast, you'll hear a lot about the Black and Jewish connection, because that's who I am, a proud Black Jew, who sees intersections of consent to power and privilege, not just in gender, but in race, class, religion, and all facets of our complex identities. So for this episode, I talked to a rabbi about what role, if any, religion has in helping us make sense of the news, of identity, and of our approach to consent. He and I talk about whether ancient texts are even valuable anymore and why Trump is the biggest sodomite of our time. I'd like to welcome into the studio Rabbi John Lehner. Um, and I actually would love to just have you introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about your congregation and a little bit about your practice. Yes, yeah, so it's great to be here. About three years ago, my wife and I started a community called BASE um, in Williamsburg, serving Jews in their 20s and 30s, so mm -hmm. kind of post-college, pre-children. Awesome. Um, and we picked the Williamsburg neighborhood specifically. Um, there's a lot of Hasidic Jews there, obviously, um, mm -hmm. and there's also a lot of young Jews, um, but there's no infrastructure there. Uh -huh. um, so there's not a lot of synagogues or community centers. So we really positioned ourselves to be that place for like a community spot for for people in the area. And what like what sect of Judaism do you mostly practice, or who who does base serve as well? Yeah, base serves everybody, and I should I should say not just Jews. So I work okay. with a lot of non-Jews as well. People interested um, in exploring Judaism. So we have like a conversion class. Um, but we serve a really wide range uh, of people who are seeking community or meaning, purpose, mm. curious um, mm. about Judaism and ways to make spirituality relevant for their lives. That sounds great. And then what's your background specifically? Like, when did you practice? Mm. When did I? Uh, well, let's see. I was ordained an Orthodox rabbi. Okay. Um, so I went to yeshiva for many, many years and learned like the traditional text and Jewish law. Uh -huh. And now I would say I identify more as like a pluralistic rabbi, hmm. um, meaning I, in practice myself, may look or feel more orthodox in nature, but um, believe in all streams of Judaism and serve a much more diverse population um, than just orthodox. Hmm. In so fact, most of the people who I work with are, are not orthodox. Okay. So do you feel like that kind of, do you have like a, a through line, like major philosophy around your approach to Judaism so that is so inclusive? Because it sounds super inclusive. So like, what would you say 
and it would be a snapshot of your approach to engaging folks with the Jewish faith. Yeah, so there's an idea um, within more mystical streams of, of Judaism that every single Jew has their own unique letter in the Torah. Hmm. Um, and then there's also a rule that if one letter of a Torah is missing, it's invalid and it can't be used for, for reading. Hmm. So I use that idea in terms of my engagement that if one person is missing, if one Jew isn't expressing their their Jewishness or their uniqueness to this whole enterprise, then something is deficient. So I, I, I really believe that and try to expand my search to include those people. Hmm. That's beautiful. So there's a place for everybody. There is and a place for everybody. Not just a place in. for everybody, but we need everybody. It's not mm-hmm. like just, oh, it's good they're here. It's like we're what we're trying to learn, we're not going to fully understand unless everybody is here. Mm. Oh, I like that. Um, thanks for that. Yeah. Um, I love that approach to inclusivity because one of the reasons I thought it'd be great to talk is because there is so much um, confusion, at least in my world, around the role of religion in sort of modern life, um, especially for young people. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons that you started BASE. Um, as somebody who's a practicing Jew, I've always found people always have raised eyebrows and they find it really surprising that you can be a, somebody that practices a religious faith and still, I don't know, go out and be do in things. The universe. Be in the universe. Yeah. yeah. And just like eat food and travel and date and like do what, I don't know, just like be a human. Yeah. In, in the world. And so um, in the current cultural climate, as I relate my next question to specifically the podcast, um, what do you think um, the the role of sort of religious communities is in teaching people about themselves from a, from a moral standpoint? Do you think that we can still look to religion to help us or guide us on our paths? Or do you think that it's a multi-pronged approach that involves a lot of different pieces and parts? I would say religion um, has to be able to be relatable and answer that question. And mm. if it's not able to, something is terribly wrong or distorted. Mm. Um, I think oftentimes people think of religions that religion, religious practice as being solely ritualistic, mm-hmm. right? So you go to church or you go to the mosque or you go to the synagogue and there are all these different activities that you do mm-hmm. to connect, um, which is true. But in all the religions, specifically Judaism, it's really about engage. It's taking the values and putting them into use in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, like Re- Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who famously marched with Dr. King um, Mm -hmm. in Selma, he said that Judaism, um, its greatest passion must be compassion. Mm. Um, So the idea that religious values have to be rooted in in these ideas of bringing more compassion, awareness to how we're interacting with human beings is pretty much what I think the core tenets of, of all religions. That's true. I guess the, the conversation that happens often is that people also use religion to defend poor behavior. And I think that's part of like a different reading of sacred texts or something like this. And I don't, I'm sure that was a super general statement. But that's, I think, a lot of the pushback that I get from people when we talk about the role and the place of religion in folks' lives is that they see how there's certain aspects of the Bible or of the Old Testament or of the Quran that weren't that positive for women, for LGBTQ folks, um, for immigrants maybe, um, and then folks take those readings and go off haywire on some way that doesn't necessarily ascribe to sort of a moral good. It becomes more of a moral evil. Do you have like... Yeah, I mean, my basic rule is like if, going back to what I just said in terms of like if compassion isn't expressed Mm. through the religious practice, something something is off. Yeah, that's what I really believe. So, you know, I'm disturbed now in the sense of a lot of Orthodox Jews, for example, are supporters of President Trump Hmm. and they use like their religious beliefs to justify that. Hmm. Um, But they're not really basing it off of really they're not really expressing what it is. For example, the Torah says that you need to distance yourself from falsehood. It's actually the only commandment in the Torah that says to distance yourself from something. Really? And yeah. it's falsehood? It's falsehood. Huh. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think even Trump supporters would admit that the man has like a very 
interesting, challenging relationship with telling the truth. Um, yes. So to me, I use my re- religious sensibilities in terms of my really my political expression. Like, for example, mm-hmm. I don't follow Trump on Twitter anymore mm-hmm. because of that commandment. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. reading his lies is against the Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, like loving the stranger, mm-hmm. um, that commandment is repeated more times than any single commandment in the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. 36 42 times according to some wow so how can you justify you know current immigration stances to the jewish sensibility of welcoming like the stranger and the most vulnerable members of society like those mm-hmm. just don't align properly mm-hmm. i love that that's that's i mean that's true i guess these are all things that i know to be true as someone that's been a part of the community since i was a child but yet these are kind of the the, the facts and figures about religion that I think get lost in the conversation because there's the maybe there's the fanatics that give a bad name to certain aspects of of religion I feel like I'm going down a weird path with this particular line of question no I mean it's it's true like for example the religious fanatics for example often talk about the biblical prohibition for homosexuality which isn't a thing well, it is does there? state in the Bible that a man shall not lie with a man as he does with a woman. Um, oh, <laughs> no, it does, right? So that it's there. I feel like it's so it's so content contentious. Like people are like, well, it means this. Well, does it? Right. So know? people have, you know, I I wouldn't say apologetics, but people have tried to to re understand that. But mm. to me, it's like set that aside. That's one commandment. Mm. or prohibition and i I know it's a big one and and it's loaded but there's way more attention focused on just as i said on the stranger for example it says that 36 times versus one so why are you putting a disproportionate amount of weight and emphasis on one right right in the talmud um which is you know a collection of of law and wisdom of the rabbis it says that it's better to jump into a fiery furnace than to publicly shame someone. Wow. So even if somebody is gay um, and is, you know, so to speak, violating, you know, this commandment, they have to be protected as a human being and have mm-hmm. their dignity um, protected. Yeah. I mean, aren't there also laws that are like stone your neighbor if X, Y and like don't you know, plant two different kinds of grain in this particular field and make sure that you bring your, if your cow was at pasture at this time and the sun goes down and bring the cow back because of the horse with the thing. And like, we don't live in that space and we're probably all planting our seeds in the wrong fields. Yeah. Well, maybe we should reassess (laughs) that, you know, Yeah. like in the, in the weekly tour portion this week, for example, it gets Mm -hmm. like into some of these minutia details. Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you dig a hole, a pit, you you have to cover it up or if somebody falls in it then you're liable for Mm. you know to repay them Mm -hmm. so you could say like living in brooklyn like i'm not digging holes in the street you know Mm -hmm. but i think you can take that concept and apply it to a lot of different things Mm -hmm. like are you are you in your own practice creating hazards for people um or and if you are like are you doing a good enough job to protect it right Um, so i think a lot of these kind of abstract laws that apply to maybe just like if you're a landowner for example can still apply um Mm -hmm. to a lot of different areas Mm -hmm. um like there's a rule in the torah that if you own a field for example a segment of the the field has to be left for only the poor people Hmm. to to gather food Mm -hmm. which is a pretty radical understanding of like property yeah that this is your field but it's not like this segment of the field belongs to the poor Mm -hmm. um and even like in the rest of your field like if you drop a fruit while you're picking it for example Mm -hmm. you can't pick it up that's for the poor oh um so yeah i I think you can take those concepts and apply them even without owning a field and Mm -hmm. be be more thoughtful in terms of how you're just relating to general society and people Yes, yeah, some uh, New York City real estate agents could really benefit from this particular Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> statement. Absolutely. <laughs>
speak specifically about that concept of giving back to your neighbors, being taking care of your neighbors, and making sure that all your neighbors are involved in consensual interactions with one another. So on this particular podcast about creating a culture of consent, um, as I mentioned previously, this particular section is called SBF, Straight Boy Feelings, where I talk to someone about how straight boy feelings do or don't have to do with creating a safe and loving culture of consent. And that has a lot of different ways of interpreting it. Um, in the past, we've talked about um, sort of toxic masculinity or how um, sort of you know patriarchy does in, in positions of power do and don't have to do with um, our our consensual relationships with one another. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you specifically about is how does the Torah and how do specific teachings within the Torah or the Talmud um, talk to us about um, consent specifically? And I do mean in a, in a relationship between humans. Um, what What's your sort of take on how consent does and doesn't play out in the Old Testament? Yeah, I think that actually um, Jewish tradition um, offers a lot of potential growth and opportunities um, for the current climate. Um, for example, um, in the Torah, when you, or just by Jewish law, for example, if you're going to get married, you have to have what's called a ketubah, which is a, a marriage contract. And many people actually say that this is perhaps like the most revolutionary document um, for women's rights, in, or it was the first in um, actually to guarantee women's rights in world history. Hmm. Um, because if the husband decided he no longer wanted to be um, married or have relations with this woman before, they could just cast him out of the house. And from my understanding at the time, women didn't work. So it was essentially a death sentence in many ways. Hmm. Um, so the ketubah is essentially this marriage contract is a pretty hefty um, fine for a husband who decides to do that. Hmm. Um, and in general, in Jewish law, um, a woman can't be married without her consent. Um, mm. It's forbidden for a husband to have sex with his wife without consent. Um, mm. Violence is obviously prohibited and can be punished. Mm. Um, you know, I I think a lot of people often criticize um, the Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox um, populations for a lot of reasons, but... I think some of their adherence to um, sexual ethics, maybe you could call it, mm -hmm. is really important for us. For example, there's a law called Shomer Nagia, where um, there's an, it's forbidden to touch somebody of the opposite sex. So, like, if a Hasidic man were to meet, you know, some a, a woman, he wouldn't extend his hand to mm -hmm. to shake it to even touch hands um let alone even a friendly hug or a kiss goodbye that's a hundred percent not allowed um mm. so i think that could be a really important um i'm not saying we should do that to some extent but it could create like a really interesting frame for how we're engaging with the world you know for them they, they're not even thinking about non-consensual touching because it's just not allowed to begin with so, you know, a hug, for example, won't will never be misunderstood because it's just not allowed. Hmm. But it's stated that the man is not supposed to do it. And a woman's also not and allowed. And a woman's not allowed to yeah. do it. Yeah. I mean it gets into interesting questions that in terms of like, you know, what about two gay men or two women? I, it I hmm. don't think they had there's not a lot of legislation around that because it wasn't um I shouldn't say as prevalent, but talked about. So that that would be a whole other discussion. But in general, I think those create real those protect those are protective measures for everybody. You know, it's assumed like I don't want to be touched, hmm. um, or I don't know if it's saying that, but there is no touching. Um, and what about the, amongst like family members? So even that, close like clo you know, around siblings, for example, siblings. that's allowed. But you know, even with an aunt or uncle like these things are pretty highly regulated hmm. um and if you ever go to like a hotel lobby in manhattan or in israel for example you'll see hasidic couples on dates there they have dates in really really public places um because there's rules around being left alone with somebody of the opposite sex so i think they create actually a lot of structure to minimize any potential dangerous situation in many ways you know 
I only went on one. I went on one date with a Hasidic man once, and he did take me to a hotel lobby to sit quietly and drink coffee. Yeah. Editor's note: He was Orthodox, not Hasidic. That's what they do. I was like, you know, we did people, do that. People, you know, <laughs> I'll admit, I always thought like that's bizarre, but now, like in this current climate, I'm like, there's actually something really powerful and important about that. And I'm not saying everybody should do that, but I think maybe we can take parts of that. Um, into our dating culture. Well, yeah, I think what you're talking about also is intentionality. So it's like rather than making assumptions about why we're here and what it is that we're supposed to do, we're going to be really, really clear about what our intentions are and why we have even met up right now, as opposed to like, oh, I know you, you know my friend, now we're going to hug. Or we're both in this like tight quarters at the same time, so I'm kind of just going to sit really close to you. We're both a little bit cold and put my arm around you, and then like things just get fuzzy and like, Nobody knows what anybody else's intentions are or where they're going or what was supposed to happen. And people think that they're supposed to just keep things to themselves. So I get the the value of just saying absolutely no touching at all. But it also just reminds me of how that goes down a path of who's allowed to do what. And I feel like those similar kind of rules are also in place when you think about the policing of our activities and the policing of our bodies in space. And it also just really reminds me of the policing of women's bodies and women's bodies in space. Because sometimes just to even start by saying a man isn't supposed to shake your hand. Well, a woman also isn't supposed to show her hair. A woman also isn't supposed to show her legs. Um, A woman shouldn't be um, in this particular place at this particular time. And then there's different ways that are like rules around how women are supposed to express themselves that all come from a lot of like shame and men controlling women's narratives. And so, I mean, is, is there not like an overlap there? Yeah, that um, it's a that great a point. No, yeah, that's definitely a sigh. And, you know, I think this is permeates in all levels of society. I mean, we were just talking about like the Super Bowl last night, for example. Um, Justin Timberlake, like he was fully clothed, never like showed any skin, for example. Right. But, you know, in memory years past, like Lady Gaga or any female performers, like mm-hmm. they're half naked. Mm-hmm. Um and it raises really interesting questions around, you know, why the expectations of sexuality um, mm-hmm. in revealing for for different genders. And it definitely is prevalent also within Hasidic communities and more religious communities in terms of like women aren't allowed to show, um, you know, their hair. They wear hair coverings. Sometimes mm-hmm. they even have wigs. Um, They can't show, you know, they have to wear skirts to their ankles or Mm -hmm. their shins um, while men have more flexibility. But in general, I think more Orthodox people generally dress probably more modestly than Mm -hmm. your average um, Mm -hmm. male. But it just it says interesting things about consent because it's like it's always just felt like women are policed more than than men are and it's because women are at you know i think a lot of it comes down to this sort of victim blaming approach where it's like well then if a woman shows more then of course like something's going to happen to her that's going to be beyond her consent because she's she's consenting to being assaulted if she shows her ankles and shows her hair so there's like it there gets to be all this like weird gray lines with these sort of rules absolutely and i mean we can transition maybe to some of the stories in the bible that have Mm. um leave you feeling um, disturbed most Mm. of the time. Mm -hmm. And so people often say, oh, like, look at the Torahs, the Bibles, you know, understanding of all these things. But it my my understanding is like, I'm glad those stories are in there. Some of the more Mm. challenging ones, Mm -hmm. because this is human beings like we people make mistakes. People are evil um, and do terrible things. And instead of like whitewashing that and erasing that from Mm -hmm. our collective conscious like these are stories that we have to deal with on a yearly basis yeah um you know just for an example the next jewish holiday purim um women play like a really central role to the to the narrative um purim is one of my favorites they're the they're the heroes of (laughs) the story but at the same time Uh they're they're terribly abused Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of Mm non-consensual aspects going on for example mm-hmm. um the king of mm-hmm. the story king Ahasuerus, mm-hmm. he's like kind of this drunken buffoon um the story starts where he's having this banquet this huge party and he invites his 
wife Vashti, Vashti yeah. to come. And the rabbis say that he invited her to come completely naked, mm-hmm. that he wanted to show her off to all his buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, and she refuses. Mm-hmm. And she then is killed um, as a result of that. And um, it's obviously tragic, but it's actually a pretty powerful statement of resistance um, mm-hmm. and civil disobedience by her um, in many ways. And that kind of theme plays itself out the rest of that story. Then Queen Esther, for example, who's mm-hmm. the Jew who has to hide her identity, but she's then taken somewhat captive by him um, and is used, I think, more sexually than for other reasons. Um, mm. So that's one story, for example, that's mm-hmm. deeply, deeply disturbing. And I remember, I mean, every year celebrating that as a kid and everyone dresses up as, for, for those that aren't familiar, um, Purim is kind of like, to me, Jewish Halloween in a lot of ways. And you dress up as different characters and people cross-dress a lot and it gets mm-hmm. a little bit wild. And there's um, a lot of Purim spiels actually all over the city. Maybe I'll add some links to so folks can check stuff out in the next couple of weeks. But um, I remember dressing up as Queen Esther and dressing up as Vashti. And I remember being told the story and reading the story and talking about the story. Like, what is it? And they told us as, you know, eight, nine-year-old kids, he asked her to dance naked for his friends, and she said no. What do you think about that? And I don't know if that's – I mean, this is in San Francisco, yeah. you know, in the 90s. So I don't know if that's a common conversation where people are asking about, like, what did it mean for her to have this non-consensual thing that her own husband asked. And so it's under the assumption that she would do it anyway, and she was like, hell no, and then ends up being murdered. What does that say about womanhood, et cetera, et cetera? So we would have these conversations, but I'm wondering – is everyone looking at it in such a re- reflective space? Or are they being like, yeah, like woman doesn't do what her husband says. She's ready to be killed. I mean, y- y- we don't know. I mean, yeah, we- I mean, to be honest, like I never saw the story in that way until, you know, fairly recently with oh. in the in the climate. And that may just be my ignorance as a man. Um, hmm. But I think that's th- th- that angle of the story is generally um, left out but there's tons of stories in the Bible with this like um, this one may be more subversive Joseph for example um, famous for his dreams and his interpretations and his technicolor dream coat he um, <laughs> I'm about to start singing yeah <laughs> he you know his beauty um, when the rabbis often describe beauty in the Talmud it's actually mostly from a male it's like Rabbi Yochanan for example was you know seen as like the most beautiful person and joseph the rabbis have stories of like women falling out of their windows when he would pass by so it's also interesting just in terms of like men describing other men's beauty and Mm -hmm. it not you know in terms of what that means but Mm -hmm. anyway he's working in in um pharaoh's house Mm -hmm. um and pharaoh's wife multiple times tries to make advancements on joseph Hmm. tries to have sex with him Hmm. he continually says no 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 and then one time he like he ran out of the house um Hmm. and then pharaoh's wife actually accused joseph of making advancements on him wow so that and then you know so we could have a whole discussion on that obviously but in many Hmm. ways that could create a culture also of like well women lying saying things that didn't happen and that become embedded you know also in jewish consciousness Hmm, so you're saying history repeats itself um (laughs) it can you know it can there's you know there's so many other stories like um oh no i just mean in a context of like we we can have this big cultural moment this big cultural reckoning of the me too movement and be like did you know what happened yeah these men did these things i'm like yeah this has been going on for at least five thousand seven hundred and seventy eight years yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah like so many of the stories of the bible Mm -hmm. are loaded like even the first story of adam and eve you know is Mm -hmm. a hypersexualized story mm-hmm. um king david who wrote who's a, ascribed to writing the book of psalms right mm-hmm. pretty big author yeah <laughs> you know uh-huh. king david was not a saint you know he saw a Bathsheba, this beautiful woman bathing next door mm-hmm. and she was married at the time and he sent her husband to war he put him on the front line so that he would die so that he could then take Bathsheba to be his his wife Hmm. so you say well how is that possible that this man wrote the book of psalms and became king david and the 
it is yeah that's who he is like he he's mm-hmm. not a perfect character mm-hmm. um the characters in the bible are not perfect they're human i mean abraham for example almost killed his son right god says you should sacrifice right. your son yeah he almost was killed his son i mean mm-hmm. he would go to jail for that in if he lived in the country now mm-hmm. um and there's you know a lot of episodes of these characters who are our heroes who made who made mistakes um mm-hmm. but the message is not like let's pretend these things didn't happen but let's let's think about this and talk about it i want to feel hopeful that we can have these critical examinations of these old texts at the same time there are just so many loud ass people that use them so negatively it I just I, I can't stop thinking about that and I, I guess I'm wondering do you feel that your role in, in your community is to try to kind of disabuse people of those notions that a lot of these texts can be used for evil rather than for good I mean because there's so many folks that just interpret it to hurt others as opposed to help yeah I mean I, I largely see my role as making the Bible and the Torah relevant meaningful for the 21st century and do you find that you bring in sort of the trends and aspects of pop culture that people are really wrestling with into these teachings so like for example my fascination lately the well i had the podcast before the me too thing started yeah but um the idea of consent like would you bring something like that into a class and talk specifically with folks about how to wrestle with some contemporary political issue by using aspects of these old texts absolutely i try you know every week when i'm teaching to not just teach like abstract ideas but you know, teachings that are really relevant to the current times. Mm-hmm. Um, like after Trump was elected, I had for weeks was just like piling on sources and mm. um, stories and t- to combat what I was feeling was happening in this country um, mm-hmm. through a Jewish perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? This like ancient Mm -hmm. city of Vegas. I kind of always think of it as. uh, (laughs) I hear that. People always, you know, think of them as, oh, they're the Sodomites, right? As a term that we use to describe like, you know, homosexual behavior. Mm -hmm. But in fact, like those people were notorious, not for that at all. They were actually known in the Bible and in rabbinic literature for being, um, despicable to the stranger like there's stories that they would flood the roads leading into the city so that the poor couldn't enter their city and they had rules about not helping people um, so like the rape episode that's described in the bible that's always ascribed to the sodomites is not you know consensual um, penetration but in fact it's, it's, it's rape as a way of mm-hmm. um, degrading the stranger Mm-hmm. So like building a wall and lowering taxes for the rich. So you basically just described Donald Trump as the biggest sodomite of all. Yeah, he is. Yeah. That's what yeah. that's what he is. And, you know, the the prophets, you know, Isaiah calls on Yom Kippur, actually, the holiest day of the right. year. Uh-huh. The prophet Isaiah calls the Jews sodomites. Hmm. And that's not saying, oh, look at you. You're doing all this homosexual activity. It's, hey, you, you're doing all these disgusting, terrible things to the poor and Mm -hmm. the afflicted people in society. Um, Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love Yom Kippur, actually, because I always found that so interesting when you go through this whole list of things that you did and you say, for the sin that I committed, for the sin of this, for the sin of this. It's the sin that we committed, by the way. Oh, not I. Jewish prayers are in the plural, which is a really interesting understanding of um, (laughs) responsibility, right? It's like, yeah. yeah, And we all say it together. I didn't actually do this but we did and i have to take responsibility for that right and i remember yeah as a kid going through all that and you think to yourself well i didn't do that but someone here sitting here today did do that and we're all going to acknowledge it together and ask for forgiveness and that again is a very powerful way of looking into how our community responsibilities are the most important aspect of building a just society right yeah i mean the bible starts with the story of cain and abel Mm -hmm. and cain says to God after he kills his brother and you know am I my brother's keeper Mm -hmm. essentially am I responsible for anybody else in this world or do I just have to worry about myself and largely the Bible the rest of it is an attempt to answer that question Mm 
mm-hmm. and to show moments of success in answering that and then terrible failures of that. Um, mm-hmm. But at the core of it is let's not create more boundaries between us um, mm-hmm. and pointing fingers. Let's take responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that's ultimately what's really, really missing in today's climate is mm-hmm. everybody's pointing fingers at each other. You're responsible. You're responsible. You're mm-hmm. responsible. Well, you know what? We're all responsible. Mm-hmm. This is terrible. We've gone really far off course here. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people are to blame for this, but let's start fixing this together. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm thinking now of the My Brother's Keeper initiative with the MBK program that Obama started during his time in his eight years in office that was specifically to... Um, value and support the achievements and the educational advancement of young black men in the United States. And then the program didn't really continue when Obama's not in office anymore. And I'm like, what, why, why would, why would you not continue a program called my brother's keeper? That's specifically about <laughs> education and helping people, no matter what population we're talking about. I'm like, and that is where our administration is right now. That literally a, a an entire program based off of collective action to benefit a component of society that that would would love to be uplifted with through all kinds of educational programming um just sort of gets you know forgotten i mean people somehow have a really creative way of overlooking parts of the bible to then just Mm. hit on points that they want i mean Mm. the largest supporters of trump are they call bible belt people yeah Mm -hmm. right you know, I, I'm not, you know, well-versed in all Christian theology, whatnot, but I do know some of Jesus's teachings. And I can tell you one thing is I do not think he would have voted for Trump and believed in any of the policies that he is putting in place in this country. Mm -hmm. Based off of quotes that I've seen Jesus say, um, those just don't seem to um, match up in any way. I agree. And Jesus was a nice Jewish carpenter. It's always the yeah, he was my my narrative. Probably brown, if not black, Jewish carpenter, low key, uh, turned water to wine, hung out, was really kind, and uh, has turned into this completely different uh, blue-eyed, blonde-haired. I don't understand the narrative around. Yeah, I'm always imagining like what Jesus would do if he came back right now. (laughs) He'd be like, "Stop it! Whoa." Cut this, this shit out. This Everyone. is not Everybody who stop. I was or what I <laughs> said. Um, yeah, I know. What, what do you think are some of the entry points for people to get involved in aspects of religion that actually feel good for them? Wow, what a question. It's a really tiny question. It's really simple. And I think it's just like a really like simple tiny little answer i'm sure yeah i mean books (laughs) yeah books are always good and um all that is great and i'm happy to attach like a suggested reading list but i think it's about taking like the core religious ideas and then seeing them play out in a whole wide range of of places and just being like really alert to that i mean Mm -hmm part of being a religious person is being aware of what's going around. Uh, you know, Moses, for example, was ultimately picked to be the, the leader of the Jewish people because he saw a shitty bush on fire in the middle of the desert that mm-hmm. wasn't being consumed. Mm-hmm. Meaning he s- was looking so closely at what was happening mm-hmm. um, and noticed it, that that was maybe why he was picked is seeing mm-hmm. those things. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible says, every single person is created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That's a huge question. But ultimately, fulfilling your ultimate purpose and expressing who you are um, in a way that's most authentic is, um, is tapping into the ultimate sense of godliness. You know, when you're, when you're restricting yourself, um, you're also restricting that inner godliness in you so i would say and i think this is really relevant in in the world that we live in is being able to pursue what you love and express that in whatever way that is is the most religious thing we can do Mm -hmm. meaning you can be 
really a religious person without ever walking inside a synagogue, without ever going inside a mosque, without ever going inside of church. In fact, like the way you can express that the most is probably outside of those places. Mm-hmm. But I feel like now you're, you're making religion and spirituality the same thing. Because one of the things I, I say to folks is I feel like I'm a very spiritual person. You don't have to necessarily ascribe it to a, a religious teaching, but you can also be very spiritual and be very connected to a certain pathway, a certain journey, a certain way of interpreting the world that isn't part of this longer, bigger religious universe. Can I, I would push back a little bit and say like peop- the terms should be used are religious and observant. Somebody mm-hmm. who's observant is somebody who's observing like you know, all the aspects of, you know, the ritualistic tend, um, laws in any religion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody who observes the Sabbath um, in its full, right, by mm-hmm. not like driving or using electricity um, or keeping to kashrut, the Jewish dietary laws, that person can say they're observant, mm-hmm. right? But somebody who doesn't necessarily do those things, but is connecting to some of the ideas that you're saying about you know, treating your neighbor with respect and um, all those things can mm-hmm. be a simultaneously a deeply, deeply religious person mm-hmm. and in fact could be more religious than the observant person. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And you know, and the, the, my biggest way of relating to all that is through the nightlife culture because I'm a very big nightlife person and I love to go out dancing and there's certain clubs that I go to and certain DJs that I love to listen to and the biggest most popular nightclub in all of Berlin where I lived for almost four years is called Berghain and it's a giant former electrical plant um, that has a bunch of different rooms and these you know two-story high sound system and it's really dark and you don't know if it's day or night in there and there's a way of interacting with one another that is very neighborly and very community-based. Um, I've always had a really lovely experience getting to know folks and it's really chill and everyone kind of dances and there's sort of, you know, ways of behaving um, and sort of interacting with one another that makes it very much a, a community. And people call it church. Um, and they say, I, you know, I went to church this weekend and I feel a lot better. Um, and Sunday is the most popular time Specifically for my friend group, it was definitely on Sundays. Granted, you know, Friday and Saturday nights, you know, it's when all the tourists are coming and whatever. But um, during the day on Sunday is when everyone would go and would dance as hard as they could and sweat as much as they could sweat and then be able to start their week on Monday feeling a sense of levity as though they had gotten rid of a lot of the toxins of their, their week or whatever had happened that weekend or in their lives. Um, and touch back into their truest sense of self and also be able to commune with like-minded individuals over music and dancing and physicality and beauty or whatever it is that that you find that you love in a place like Bergheim. Um, And so that is, I think, exactly what it is that we're talking about. Like that can be a religion if it's healthy for you and if it's helping you in that way. Um, So I, you know, I, I don't reprimand anybody that doesn't ascribe to a more traditional religious teaching um i yeah i definitely agree that that that's what i'm observant of is the the church of nightlife that i find really really wonderful where do you teach your class and is it open to people yeah i teach at base brooklyn mm-hmm. um base um by in hebrew means home Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is that it, I do most of our teachings in literally my house, mm-hmm. um, in my wife's house, um, but it's also somewhat a communal space. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that, um, which is in Williamsburg, by the way, you can mm-hmm. look it up on the internet and anybody is always welcome to come. But the idea being is that um, seeing the home as the focal point of, of teaching and community, I think mm-hmm. is really important because people generally are their most authentic selves and most willing to share Mm -hmm. um and experience other people in the comforts of a home Mm -hmm. even if it's not your home you know there's something about being in somebody's home Mm -hmm. that's much different from walking into like a hallow synagogue or church for example so that's a lot of um where we're going with and we have a lot of different opportunities um intro to judaism classes bible classes Mm -hmm. talmud classes um and a lot of other just communal events that we're up to 
Great. And I'll put that link in the, um, the bio of the, of the podcast. And also, yeah, as someone that has been in your home, it was in your home that I first told uh, more than one person at a time about the cock podcast. Yes. I told an entire room full of people. <laughs> that was my first time actually saying out loud, it's called cock. Yeah. <laughs> put it <laughs> out there. A bunch of people that yeah, did not know me. I got to watch all their faces go, oh, okay. And I was like, all right, that's that. Okay. Because you know, my, my dad was not that thrilled about the title. He kept asking me, are you sure that's what you want to call it? Are you sure that's how? And I was like, dad, people are reacting really well. So I think we're just going to keep it. It's fine. Another big thanks to Rabbi Jonathan Leener for being a guest on Cock. You can find him online at basehillel.org backslash B-K-L-Y-N, or just check out the notes in the podcast description. Also, this backtrack is from my 2015 EP, There Comes a Time, and this is a remix produced by the super talented Berlin-based Michael Lovat. Check him out online. So in closing, we have Tam thoughts. Um, inspired by Oprah Winfrey's Things I Know For Sure, I take a moment to acknowledge that something that I know for sure is that I'm taller than the average man, hence Tam thoughts. And this week is let your spirit be your guide and try to get closer to your truth. That's the way that you can demand clarity of purpose, where you can consent to standing in your own truths. It was also just Chinese New Year this past February 16th, um, year of the dog, and my dear friend Chiti asked all of her friends to answer the question, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? So on that note, I'll end with a poem from the magnificent Nayira Wahid. Deep down in yourselves, you know the truth. You are exquisite. And yes, you are that powerful. And it scares you. Cock! <laughs>